Hello everyone, this is Historian Explaining, a historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. These lectures are on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and other platforms. And you may have noticed it's been a while since I posted uh, a new lecture. Uh, it's been about a month, I think. Uh, so I've been preparing to start teaching a new class, which I'll be doing through the fall. So I don't know exactly how frequently I'll be producing these new installments. Uh, but if you follow me on Patreon, you should see that I've sort of rejiggered my goals for different levels of patronage. And I have pledged that if I get up to 75 patrons, I'm currently at 55, if I get up to 75, then I'll commit to producing at least three uh, of these installments a month on a regular schedule, right? It'll make it feasible for me to do that. And I'll even make it my goal to, to do one a week, but definitely three per month. So if you like hearing them and if you want them to keep coming with regularity and predictability, please go sign up at Patreon for any amount, even if it's just a dollar, and you'll have access also to my patron-only lectures, including my last Myth of the Month, which was about the West or Western civilization. So I want to talk today about a certain set of myths relating to the U.S. Constitution. So the U.S. Constitution obviously is constantly being discussed and debated in the news. There are all kinds of controversies, particularly around the meaning or application of certain lines, of certain clauses in the Constitution, like what is the right to bear arms and so on. But it's not as often discussed why the Constitution takes the shape that it does. Why are there these articles and sections and clauses and amendments in the Constitution to begin with? What is their purpose and how did they end up there? And that's particularly significant. There are many myths surrounding the Constitution, but it's particularly significant when it comes to certain controversial aspects of the structure of our government particularly the Senate and the Electoral College, since those are bodies that represent the public in some way, shape, or form, but do so in an uneven and weighted way, so that people are not represented evenly according to one person, one vote. And for that reason, they often come up in controversies and discussions about the Constitution, about legislation, and especially in elections, right? The Electoral College only, uh, you know, materializes into existence for a brief moment every four years for the purpose of choosing a president, or at least playing some tiny formalistic role in the choosing of a president. And so as presidential elections and campaigns come up, the Electoral College again and again now becomes a subject of debate and controversy and probably will continue to do so as the disparity in representation between people in different states gets more and more severe. So there are many arguments one could make on all different sides of this question of whether it's valid or fair or advantageous one way or another to have a Senate or an Electoral College. And I will probably address those arguments briefly. But then I really want to talk about 
the mythology, the, the myth, particularly that these bodies exist for the purpose of protecting small states against large states. And as I'm going to try to explain, this balance of power between large and small states was indeed a concern among the so-called framers who drafted the Constitution in 1787. It was something they had to work out, but it was a comparatively minor, third-rate concern. And it was not the reason why the Senate or the Electoral College were proposed and created in the first place. Okay, the, the fear of large states dominating the federal government was a factor and it played into how these institutions were structured and apportioned, but they are not the reason why the Senate was created. They're not the reason why the Electoral College was created. There were issues of class, of the upper and lower class, and issues of region, particularly between slaveholding and non-slaveholding states, or I should say less slaveholding states, that were the real difficult points that these framers had to work through, and the large versus small states was a comparatively minor concern. And it's unclear even how that controversy or fear ultimately played into the decisions of the framers. Okay, so basically when people bring up this concern or this criticism that people aren't represented equally or fairly in the Senate and in the Electoral College, people often rush in with post hoc rationalizations. They'll come up with often kind of convoluted stories about why these bodies are necessary and what sort of purposes they serve, okay? And these post hoc explanations sometimes do draw on real facts, and I'll talk a bit about that, but also just as often they make things up, right? It's, it's a lot easier, I think, psychologically to come up with explanations for why things should be the way they are and why they somehow make sense rather than grappling with the thought that maybe they don't make sense and some sort of very difficult process should be engaged to change them or at least rethink them, right? So, so I think there's a lot of kind of psychological defensiveness going on when people say, you know, this system really makes no sense. It's easy to kind of dig up these, these post hoc rationalizations. Okay, but let's, let's say... Uh, to begin with, that there is a sort of surface validity, a sort of surface seeming validity to this argument that, well, the Senate and the Electoral College are there in order to defend small states from being completely run roughshod over by bigger states. Okay, well, first one has to consider, is that true in the sense, does it work in achieving that end? Is there any evidence that these bodies, like the Senate and Electoral College, have actually been effective at defending small states against big states? Well, in order to answer that question, we have to ask, well, is there any evidence that there has ever been a danger or a threat of large states somehow uniting and dominating the government and impeding the interests of small states? Okay, well, let's say we start here with the Senate, right? The Senate is a body that sits 
every year, right? It takes a lot of breaks, of course, but it does operate every year. And it is supposed to be, according to this argument, a counterbalance or a check against the House of Representatives, right? And the House of Representatives sits just at the other end of the building, you know, in the same Capitol building. And it is comprised of representatives that are apportioned according to the populations of states. So bigger states have more reps, small states have fewer. So if you want to ask, well, is the Senate necessary and does it protect against this danger of domination or tyranny by big states, we just have to look at the House. We have a sort of living experiment in the form of the House of Representatives. And we can ask, well, in the House, do the big states dominate and push through the sorts of legislation that they want at the expense of small states? Well, for one thing, we can just look at the operation of the House. Is it true that the big states in the House of Representatives, like California, Texas, New York, Florida, somehow band together and dominate or control the agenda or push through legislation harmful to small states? Well, this should be absurd right, right away as soon as I propose this idea. Why? Because those big states that I just mentioned are all very different from one another and have radically different interests and agendas, right? California, Texas, and New York don't all see eye to eye, right? There's no, there's no big state dominating faction there. It doesn't work that way. And that's how it's always been. The big states in the nation have always been multivarious and reflected the varieties of regions and classes throughout the country. Right? So that just as at the founding, uh, Virginia, Pennsylvania, and Massachusetts were all radically different and had different agendas and came from different sections of the country, right? New England, the Middle States, and the South. Likewise, still today. And furthermore, we can look within the delegations of a big state. If you have a large state like California or Texas or Florida, you have different regions, again, different classes, different interests, groups with different values, and their representatives do not act in concert or vote on block. Far from it. Often they're radically opposed to one another. If we look just within the delegation of California, for instance, we can have uh, conservative Republicans like Devin Nunes and Duncan Hunter alongside centrist Democrats like Nancy Pelosi, alongside left-wing Democrats like uh, Ro Khanna or Katie Porter, right? And these guys do not see eye to eye on any issue that is brought before the House as a point of controversy, right? They might vote together on procedural motions or naming post offices, right? But on controversial questions, they are not on the same side at all. And like, likewise, within the delegation of Texas or New York or Pennsylvania or Michigan and so on, you can find extremes and examples of all different ideological factions, right? So there's a basic fallacy here in thinking that somehow large states all share a common interest or agenda and that they're going to act in concert against the interests of small states. It's possible that maybe hypothetically there might be some bills or some motions that affect state governments that maybe deal with the reimbursement rate 
for programs administered by states, for instance, where large and small states might have different views. Well, those are particular cases, and it actually was proposed at one point at the Constitutional Convention in 1787 that Congress should simply be apportioned by population, one person, one vote, and that a special council should be set up where states are represented equally that will just have veto power over those particular measures that deal with states and state governments, whereas everything else affects individuals, affects the taxes we pay or the wars we engage in or the laws we have to obey every day. And in those instances, which is the vast majority, the people should all have an equal say, right? Rather than being represented by state, you should be represented equally as a person, as a citizen, right? So basically, if we look at the House, again, we don't see evidence for this idea that large states are this danger to the freedoms of small states. It just hasn't played out that way, and there's no necessary logical reason to think that it would. Likewise, if we look at House leadership, we can again ask, do the big states dominate? Well, we can just take a glance at who have the speakers of the House been right through the years. And there is no pattern of big states installing their preferred representatives in leadership or in control of the House. The current Speaker of the House, of course, Nancy Pelosi, is from California. She's from the biggest state. But if we go back before Pelosi, the previous 10 speakers came from Wisconsin, Ohio, Illinois, Georgia, Washington, Texas, Massachusetts, Oklahoma, Massachusetts, and Texas. Okay, so Texas and Massachusetts have produced a lot of guys, right? But Massachusetts isn't one of the biggest states, not in recent times, and certainly neither is Oklahoma or Wisconsin. There's been a variety, a sampling of leadership from all the different states. And in fact, no two speakers of the House in a row have come from the same state since the 1830s. Okay, so we're, we're getting close to two centuries of every successive Speaker of the House coming from a different state from their predecessor. Okay, so again, there is no pattern here of big states dominating the show, right? Now still, one could say, all right, well, that's fair enough, but the framers had this concern that you had to stop big states from controlling the show, and that's why we have the Senate, and we should just stick to that, right? We shouldn't fiddle around. We shouldn't fiddle with the Constitution. We should keep the mechanisms in place. Um, and that is fair enough, but as I'm going to argue, it's a misunderstanding of why there's a Senate at all in the first place, okay? And the explanation for why the framers created a Senate to begin with is not at all what people talk about or think about today. And it really should dispel this idea that the Senate is absolutely necessary according to our standards and our common principles that we hold today. Now still, of course, some people might say that I am overlooking an important systematic difference between big and small states that makes it necessary to restrain the power of big states against small states. And that systematic difference is that big states are urban and small states are rural. And so rural interests 
need to be protected in the structure of government against the power of urban population concentrations. Well, that's an interesting point as far as it goes. For one thing, it's not clear why we would apply that logic only to rural versus urban as opposed to all the other significant social divides in society. Why is it necessary to create a whole body of Congress just to defend the interests of rural people as if they are so threatened by the urban majority rather than creating houses that protect minority ethnic groups or minority religious groups or women against men? Or if the difference, if the real salient difference we're concerned about between rural and urban interests is that rural areas are poorer or rural people are poorer, then why don't we simply create a house that protects, that overrepresents poor people rather than indirectly doing it by a house that overrepresents small states over big states? Okay, it's the logic is very convoluted. And when I throw out these ideas, like, well, why isn't there a house that maybe is composed entirely of women, for instance? Often people object, well, you shouldn't do that because it violates one person, one vote. It's racist or sexist. Well, okay, but then why is it okay to overrepresent rural people as opposed to urban people? Doesn't that also equally violate the basic principle of one person, one vote? Right? So again, it's a post hoc rationalization that doesn't really fit when you examine it against our other shared beliefs and assumptions. And finally, if you still absolutely believe that it's necessary to protect uh, rural states as opposed to urban states, then why not just do that directly? Why not simply overrepresent rural states against urban states? Why should it be large versus small states. Those two things are not the same, right? There's a fallacy here in thinking that small states are rural and big states are urban. That might be true in most cases or more often than not, but it is certainly not an absolute rule, okay? There are small states, including states among the 10 smallest in the nation today, such as Rhode Island and Delaware, that are also among the top 10 densest and most urban states, right? Rhode Island is small. It's in the bottom 10 in population. It's the second densest, and by that measure, the second most urban state. And same with Delaware. It's one of the smallest, but it's overwhelmingly urban. And conversely, it is not true that big states are urban, okay? The second largest state in the nation in population is Texas, but Texas is 26th in population density. In other words, it is more rural than most other states. So it's incorrect just to suppose that, oh, well, mechanisms that overrepresent small states therefore protect rural interests. And if that is actually your goal, to protect rural interests, then you should measure how urban or rural a state is and give it weighted representation by that measure. So all of these arguments are all post hoc rationalizations. But putting all of that aside, one could still give weight to these considerations or bolster the apparent persuasiveness of these arguments by saying, well, this is how the founders saw it. The founders were concerned about 
large versus small states or rural versus urban states or whatever. And that's why the government works this way and we should keep it this way. Well, this is a historical myth that has some limited factual basis to it, but is mostly wrong. Okay, there are various historical errors at work here. For one thing, we can say absolutely for certain, historically, that the founders were not concerned about protecting rural as opposed to urban states. How do we know that? Because there were no urban states in 1787. Such a thing didn't exist. Okay, the whole country was overwhelmingly rural and agrarian. This includes the largest state, which was Virginia, which had over 700,000 people, about 40% of whom were slaves, and it was an agrarian and largely, though not entirely, plantation-based society. And that was the biggest state by far. So there was no correlation at all between a large state and being more urban. Okay, There really were no cities in the United States in the 1780s and 90s by our standards today. There was a string of somewhat sizable towns along the coast, Boston, Newport, New York, Philadelphia, Charleston, Savannah, and you could count Richmond was just getting big enough maybe to count as a large town. The biggest was Philadelphia, which had at most 29,000 people at the time when the Constitution was written. So not even big enough to call a city by our standards today. So by that measure, you could say there were no urban people in America at all. But even if you count Philadelphia, it was only 29,000 people in Pennsylvania, which as a state had over 400,000. So we're talking about uh, a town with significantly less than 10% of the population of the state that it was located in. Right? And Pennsylvania outside Philadelphia, again, was overwhelmingly farms and small agrarian villages. Right? This is the society we're talking about. So there was no thinking about rural versus urban. And, and nobody in the debate over the Constitution raised that fear right, of urban interests outweighing rural. They were literally just concerned about big states versus small states. And basically, you had a situation where certain smaller states, particularly New Jersey, most of all, were concerned about losing some of the structural power that they had under the Articles of Confederation, right? the previous government, where they had one vote in Congress alongside each other state with one vote. So it was really just about the political wrangling and the fact that small states such as New Jersey didn't want to lose the political influence they had. And so certain concessions were made to satisfy these states like New Jersey and make it possible for them to sign on to the new constitution. Okay, so this concern about large versus small states, it was brought up and it was used, you could say, as leverage by certain small states to adjust certain structural aspects of the new constitution and of how states would be represented. However, this was not the original reason why anybody was created in the constitution. It is not the original reason why the Senate was invented and included. It was not the original reason why the Electoral College was invented. So what were the big major pressing concerns 
that the framers were worried about, that they were trying to address in creating those bodies? Well, firstly, it was protection of the upper class, of upper class interests, okay, making sure that decisions couldn't be made and policies could not be set by the majority of the public at large. And this is something that many framers said over and over again, leading up to the Constitutional Convention, during the convention, and afterwards during the debate over ratifying the Constitution. This was their big emphasis, right? Withdrawing power away from the democratic majority masses, whom they saw as, as irrational, driven by passion, unjust, vicious, tyrannical, uh, even wicked, and to reserve power for a small elite group, right, that would be able to guarantee the most of all the property rights of the upper class. Okay, so that was number one. And second, the most of the framers of the Constitution agreed on that point, right? They, they, there was consensus that the new government had to be less democratic than the Articles of Confederation or the states had been. But the big dividing point that delegates to the Constitutional Convention disagreed about and that they had to negotiate and balance out very carefully was the disagreement over slavery. Right? So slavery had become a major part of society and the economy, basically from the Chesapeake southward. And you had basically five states who relied very much and wanted to protect slavery interests or really you know, Maryland was kind of a gray area case. You really could say four main states where it was crucial. And then north of Maryland, you had eight states where slavery was not very important, where in most of them it was being phased out. It was already abolished effectively in Massachusetts and was being phased out and where most people wanted to see slavery eventually eliminated. And this was the big flashpoint and controversy. And so the delegates had to negotiate very carefully how to sort of carve out a limited space for slavery within the new system. Okay, so it had to be negotiated and massaged. And these two concerns, these two goals, shifting power to the upper class and working out some sort of negotiated settlement about slavery, led to the creation of these very complicated, indirect bodies of power, including the Senate and the Electoral College. Okay, so in order to see why this is true, why this was the two major driving concerns of the convention, we have to back up and look at America in the 1780s and the, the crisis that came about after the end of the revolution that then eventually led to the new constitution. So during the Revolutionary War, the 13 states engaged in rebellion signed a sort of working charter called the Articles of Confederation, which created a fairly weak and limited central government with decisions made by a Congress in which each state was represented. And the Articles of Confederation, by many measures and in many people's view, worked well. They were effective in managing and settling disputes between states. And most importantly, the major challenge of managing and administering the Western territories. So the Articles of Confederation Congress passed the Land Ordinance and Northwest Ordinance, 
which said that all the lands west of the existing states would be administered by Congress, that land would be sold off to small buyers, and that as the western lands were populated more densely by American citizens, they would eventually become self-governing territories and then eventually states with full equal status in the Union. So this was very important for heading off fights and disputes that could have arisen between states over control of that western land. Uh, And there were other successes as well, diplomatically and so forth, of the Articles of Confederation. But by 1785, there was a lot of discontent and controversy and many people arguing that the Articles should be replaced with a more powerful central government. And this was happening at root because of a severe economic crisis, particularly a currency crisis in the country. So after the war was over, most Americans still continued to depend upon imports of various goods like cloth from abroad. And that meant that they were spending the valuable money they had, especially specie, gold and silver. A lot of the currency in America was actually Spanish silver coins. They were spending that money in return for imports. And as they did so, specie, gold and silver, was being drained out of the country. So this main medium of exchange, this main form of money, was becoming more scarce. And as it did so, there was deflation, right? The opposite of what we are used to, right? There was deflation where prices of goods went down. So if you were a producer, like like a farmer, you could get less money, less actual usable gold or silver money in return for what you produced, right? Prices were going down. And that meant with this deflation, it got more and more difficult for particularly poor people, laborers and farmers, to pay debts that they owed. Okay, and that could include debts to lenders. You know, and most farmers had various debts that they had to pay back, money they'd borrowed to pay for seed or equipment. And the value of those debts If you had a debt of, say, 10 pounds, the real purchasing power of that debt got bigger and bigger year by year, and it became more and more impossible to pay back that debt, especially if your creditor expected you to pay back in this increasingly scarce gold and silver. Also rents. If you were a renter, a tenant, it became harder and harder year by year to pay your rent. And also taxes, okay? And taxes went up tremendously because most of the states owed huge debts on money they had borrowed to fight the war. So now there was this huge multiplied debt burden placed mainly on poorer taxpayers, again, like laborers, artisans, and farmers. And it was harder and harder for them to pay these taxes. Many of them fell behind in their taxes. And there was really increasing economic misery foreclosures on farms of people who couldn't pay back debts or taxes, bankruptcies in places where people could declare bankruptcy, and in cases where they couldn't, many went to debtor's prison. And all of this economic pressure forced many people, particularly Revolutionary War veterans, to sell off whatever assets they had. Uh, They were going broke, they were going bankrupt, 
and they had to sell off whatever they could to try to cover and pay back these debts. And if you were a Revolutionary War veteran in the 1780s, one of the assets you were likely to have was payment bonds that had been issued to you as a soldier or a militiaman, right? So during the war, the states and the Continental Congress didn't have a bunch of gold and silver to give you as payment. So they issued bonds, basically promising to pay you what you were owed at some point in the future. Well, guess what? The Congress was strapped for cash after the war was over. The states were strapped for cash. They didn't pay back these bonds that they owed to the veterans. And so if you had a bond that said you're owed a pound by, say, the New York government, it was understood there was very little chance you were going to get that money back, and certainly not anytime soon. So these stocks and bonds depreciated in value. They were worth only cents on the dollar, right? Tiny fractions of their face value. And many of these desperate, indebted farmers and other veterans sold them off to speculators, again, on cents for the dollar, uh, just to get a little bit of, of revenue. And they were basically despairing of ever really getting the full pay that they were owed. And the speculators who bought up these uh, depreciated stocks and bonds were sometimes called stock jobbers. And many of them were wealthy merchants who uh, invested in these depreciated stocks and bonds, who bought them at tiny prices in the hopes that somehow in the future they would be redeemed. But they knew that that was not likely to happen under the Articles of Confederation because that government was very weak, it couldn't collect many taxes, it couldn't collect taxes directly, and so they expected, at least implicitly, that their investment would only ever really pay off if at some point in the future there was a stronger central government that would commit to paying back those bonds. Okay, so we have a situation emerging by the mid-1780s where there's a severe and often acrimonious class divide. And on the one hand, you have increasingly indebted, impoverished, small farmers and artisans and laborers. And on the other hand, you have a somewhat more prosperous merchant class and investor class who holds most of those stocks and bonds. And there is a, an extreme divide over policy questions between these different classes. This acrimonious debate is carried on within state legislatures, right? So within the state assemblies, you might have representatives who come from one or the other of these classes. And in some states, the majority of the legislature might be people who came from the more impoverished farmer class, and they wanted debt relief. They wanted relief from this severe burden of debts and taxes that was getting harder and harder to pay back with the currency deflation. So they wanted to do things like cancel debts, call moratoriums on debts, and issue paper money. Okay, And this did happen in some states. And against them, you had this wealthier class who didn't want debt cancellation because most of the debts were owed to them. They wanted to keep the taxes 
flowing into the governments, and they wanted the state governments and Congress to use that tax money to pay back the stocks and bonds, most of which they had bought up, so they stood to benefit. Okay, so you see this divide, right? And different states reacted to this crisis in different ways, especially depending on how democratic and inclusive their government system was. So on one extreme, you had Rhode Island, which was the most democratic state in a certain sense, right? Uh, there were still some slaves in Rhode Island. It was being phased out, but there still were some. They had no political rights. Women could not vote. But if you look at men in Rhode Island, the franchise was very widely available. You just had to be a freeman of a town in order to take part in town business and vote in the state elections. And to be a freeman of a town was not that hard. If your father had been a freeman, you could inherit the title of being a freeman. Also, if you owned 40 pounds worth of property, which was not all that much, a sort of sizable farm or a nice house in a town could be worth that much. So if you had 40 pounds worth of property, you could become a freeman. Or if you rented property for seven pounds or more a year, which again was not all that much. So if you had an medium-sized tenant farm, or if you rented a house or a workshop in town, you could probably qualify. And it seems from historians' calculations that probably about 78% of all the adult men in Rhode Island could vote. And that was much more than in any other state. So in Rhode Island, you have a lot of poorer men, of farmers and tenants, uh, voting and electing representatives. And they do things like call a moratorium on the payback of debts to give farmers and debtors more time to pay back their debts. And they issue paper money. They issue Rhode Island uh, dollars and put them in circulation and say, this is valid money and it must be accepted as payment for any debts. And what that did is it expanded the money supply and created some inflation, right? And inflation, again, creates relief. Uh, it means that if you're a farmer, say, selling your crops in the fall, you can get more pounds or more dollars in return for your crop, and it enables you to pay your rent or pay your debts or whatever. So it was a way to kind of rebalance the money supply and relieve some of that burden. At the opposite end, if you go just over the border from Rhode Island to Massachusetts, Massachusetts was the least democratic. The fewest people could vote. You had to meet a high property requirement just to vote. You had to be a member of your town's congregational church in order to vote. And there were further hurdles if you wanted to be elected to office. There was a higher property requirement if you wanted to be elected to the state house, and an even higher one if you wanted to be a state senator, and a very high, over a thousand pounds. You had to be really rich to become governor. So, you know, Massachusetts had these built-in rules, must be this rich to ride. And their state government was the most heavily skewed towards the interest of the wealthy and of creditors, right? So they did not allow any kind of debt relief or moratorium. They did not allow the issuance of state currency. And they continued to very aggressively demand taxes, including from small farmers and many veterans who had fought for independence were now losing their farms and their livelihoods because of these onerous uh, debts and taxes. 
And this situation in 1786 boiled over in Shays Rebellion, which was an incident in central and western Massachusetts, sort of from the Worcester area over to Springfield, where these small farmers, many of whom were veterans, many of whom had war experience, got their rifles and joined together and simply shut down the courthouses and so stopped the proceedings of foreclosures right, on the farms and homes and workshops of, of these poor, often poor veterans. Right? So in a way, you can see Massachusetts and Shays' Rebellion as a foreseeable result of the exclusion of poorer people and debtors out of the political process. When they couldn't vote and enact legislation and policies to relieve their debt burden, as happened in Rhode Island and also in some other states like North Carolina, then they resorted to force of arms. You know, basically the same thing that had just happened a decade earlier in the Revolutionary War. People who had no representation in Parliament took up arms to block the policies implemented by Parliament, right? So in a way, you could see it as a repetition of the same thing, right? Now, how did these elites that I've been talking about before, people who were creditors, many of them merchants, some were planters, who now owned a lot of these government stocks and bonds, how did they respond to these developments? Well, basically, the way they saw it, Rhode Island was an example of things going wrong. Okay, The worst outcome was poorer people and debtors, whom they tended to view as lazy and greedy, actually winning control of government. That was what they wanted to stop. And they admired and supported the model of Massachusetts. Just exclude those people from government so they can't enact these policies. Now, they were very disturbed, of course, by Shays' Rebellion, but they didn't see the response to Shays' Rebellion as being, well, let's enfranchise people and bring them into the political process. Instead, they saw the solution as being create a bigger, stronger government with a big standing army that can crush those rebellions. Right? Shays' Rebellion had pre presented a real threat in Massachusetts, and the militia just barely was able to put it down. So wealthier people, including members of the Continental Congress and members of some state houses and statesmen and diplomats, merchants, planters, tended to say, okay, what we have to do is clamp down on these states like Rhode Island or North Carolina that are doing these absolutely unacceptable things like canceling debts or issuing paper money. And they complained repeatedly of, quote, an excess of democracy. That was sort of the, uh, the big enemy that they wanted to defeat, this excess of democracy. And I'm just going to read out a couple paragraphs from the book Unruly Americans and the Origins of the Constitution by Woody Holton, where Holton examines the scuttlebutt going on among these sort of elite leaders about the state houses and what they were doing in the 1780s. And he says, quote, What these men were saying was that the American Revolution had gone too far. Their great hope was that the federal convention would find a way to put the democratic genie back in the bottle. Alexander Hamilton, the most ostentatiously conservative of the convention delegates, 
affirmed that many Americans, not just himself, were growing, quote, tired of an excess of democracy. Others identified the problem as a headstrong democracy, a prevailing rage of excessive democracy, a republican frenzy, democratical tyranny, and democratic licentiousness. So this is just a little taste of of the talk that was going on leading into the Constitutional Convention, right? The problem is too much democracy. The, The American Revolution has empowered too many people, and they have to be stopped from taking control of the state governments and instituting the policies that they prefer. And the great bete noir in this debate, again, was Rhode Island, which was called, it had always been controversial among the other states, and was called Rogue's Island, a place of anarchy, a foolish slut, and so on, right? So this was the, the specter of what had to be stopped. So again, these elites feared losing political control of the states to poor people and debtors, losing the debts that they believed were rightly owed to them, and also having to pay taxes, right? They didn't want the tax burden to be shifted from the poor too much to the rich. So it was about their interests. And their hope for a possible solution was to create a new, stronger government, which would take power away from these states and reserve it to a new central governing body, which would cut the poor out of politics, or at least provide a veto against the measures of the poor, and would stop these policies like debt relief. And also for some of them that would make the United States a good target for investment from abroad. They feared that as these poorer parties and groups took power in the states and did things like canceled debts or or relieved debts, that that would make the United States unattractive to investment from abroad, especially from Europe. And so they needed to create a stronger central government that could suppress this democratic impulse and make the U.S. a better ground for foreign investment. Right? So this new, stronger government would be able to crush resistance like Shays' Rebellion, collect taxes, and pay back the stocks and bonds that the stock jobbers had bought up. Okay? So, so in a way, it was, it, it, was a, it was a multi-layered project, but it was very much serving the desires and the hopes of a certain limited elite upper class. And so when we look at who went to the Constitutional Convention and who took part, there were delegates there from 12 states, but only 11 were officially participating with the backing of their state governments, right? New York was very divided and confused, but Hamilton and others still went to the convention. Rhode Island did not participate. They sent no delegates. They did not see the project as legitimate at all. And also some prominent leaders of the revolutionary founders also refused to participate. You may have heard Patrick Henry refused to go because he was more sympathetic to the interests of the poor and small farmers. And so he saw it as as dangerous and did not participate. So among the delegates who went from the 11 participating states, most of them were wealthy. Okay, they were all either middle class or wealthy, and most of them held some sort of economic assets that could easily increase in value 
with a stronger government and foreign investment. Okay, the assets that can be called personality or movable assets, and that includes money, stocks and bonds, including government stocks and bonds, and slaves. Okay, so so a large portion were were also slaveholders. Not as much land. Okay, land is more complicated. It's not as easily movable, right? It's not movable, and it's not as easily transferable. So there wasn't as much landed interest, but but it tended to be upper class people, especially with a lot of money, slaves, tradable goods, and stocks. And there were some, as historians have pointed out, there were some very important influential delegates at the convention who didn't hold government stocks and bonds, such as Hamilton and James Madison from Virginia. But these men did also believe that an elite-controlled government was better for foreign investment, that it would create a more predictable, stable environment for foreign investment, which they considered important for the good of the country. So among these delegates who shaped the Constitution, there was pretty wide agreement on the priority of reserving power for a wealthy elite and removing the sort of mechanisms of power away from the ordinary voting public. Okay, and one a delegate from Georgia, Clymer, said, quote, a representative is appointed to think for and not with the people. So they, they favored a representative elective government, but they believed that those representatives shouldn't actually act according to the wishes of the public, but rather should think, in his words, for them, should, should judge from his own more removed and more elite point of view. So the Constitution created this whole complicated system of government, right? And we can get into that. But at the time, the most important, most impactful clause in the whole Constitution that the delegates were most sure and enthusiastic about and that they trumpeted the most after the convention was not about Congress or the president or the Electoral College or checks and balances or any of this stuff. Rather, it was Article 1, Section 10, which specifically prohibits the states from printing money or from interfering with contracts or debts. Okay, this was the substance, substantive meat of the issue that they were most concerned about. And if we look again at Woody Holton's book, he says, quote, Section 10 was touted as, quote, the soul of the Constitution. Virginia Governor Edmund Randolph pronounced Section 10 a great favorite of mine. Nothing in the whole federal Constitution is more necessary than this very section, a New Jersey Federalist proclaimed. Two prominent Pennsylvanians, the attorney James Wilson and physician Benjamin Rush, independently reached the conclusion that even if the Constitution did nothing more than ban paper money, that alone would still, in Russia's words, be enough to recommend it to honest men. So this was, to the framers, the most critical part of the Constitution, and it was one of the most controversial when it was being debated, although we never think about it today, right? We think about the, the checks and balances and about the Bill of Rights, which came much later. At the time, the crux of the issue was these disputes over money and debts. Now, as I said, within the convention, although there was this wide agreement about 
class, about cutting out the lower class and the states from doing things like debt relief or issuing money. There was disagreement over slavery, right? And some delegates at the convention were firmly opposed to slavery, such as Ben Franklin from Pennsylvania. Others uh, defended it, and there was a real fierce divide there, and the delegates had to sort of carefully dance around this issue. So the structures, like the Senate and the Electoral College, were really created to mediate and reserve a veto power for the upper class, to make sure that the majority of citizens wouldn't be able to set policy, while also carefully balancing off the interests of slave and free states. So let's say we take the Senate for one. The idea of the Senate, okay, the idea of having a bicameral Congress with a House of Representatives and a Senate, was introduced right at the very beginning of the convention, and it was part of the Virginia plan first put forward by James Madison and Edmund Randolph of Virginia right at the start of the debate. And in their view, both houses of Congress, the upper and lower houses, should both be proportional to population. And many delegates, not all, but many delegates accepted this and shared this view, that you should have a lower house and an upper house, both with representatives according to the population of the states. Well, this raises a question that we don't often think of today because we don't talk about this fact. Why would it be necessary to have an upper and lower house if they're both according to population and not equal among the states? Well, there are two main reasons for it. One is simply protect the upper class. The upper house would be the house of the upper class. And this is more or less how its advocates spoke about it. And it's the main reason why they agreed there should be a Senate. So the bicameral legislature within upper and lower house clearly mimics, first of all, Great Britain, where you have sovereignty vested in the king, the House of Lords, and the House of Commons. And it was understood that the American system would mimic the British system. And you would have a president with executive powers like a king, a Senate, more or less the American House of Lords, and the House of Representatives, which would be like the House of Commons, right? So the intention was to build class difference into the structure of the government, okay? And it would be restricted to the wealthy. And another way that, uh, that, the, that the Senate would be reserved for the wealthy was that unlike the House, it wouldn't be elected by the people, okay? That was not the intention, and that is not how the Senate has worked for most of its history. It is... It has not been elected by the people. Rather, it was created to be elected by the state legislatures. And in this way, it would reflect the different interests of the different states. And also, it would be more removed from the public, right? State legislators already would come from a somewhat higher social class and social echelon than the ordinary working voters and farmers who elected them. And then they would choose senators who would most likely be understood to be of a higher social class, greater social prominence than the legislatures, right? So the Senate would be more removed, more aristocratic. And this is the exact term that many delegates used throughout the convention, was that the Senate should be more aristocratic. 
Also, the Senate would be reserved certain special powers that were denied to the House, such as confirming cabinet officers, confirming judges and justices, and approving or rejecting treaties. So power over the executive, power over the judiciary, power over foreign affairs would be reserved to this more aristocratic upper-class body. And all of this was basically uncontroversial. Okay, there was no... There was no real dispute about any of this, that there should be a, basically an American House of Lords and it should protect upper class interests. It should have control over these crucial affairs like foreign affairs and the judiciary and that it should have the power to veto anything that the public tried to do through the House of Representatives. Right Now, there was dispute and disagreement over exactly how the Senate should be proportioned. And some, such as Madison, wanted it to be by population, just like the House. But New Jersey objected and said, no, the Senate should be apportioned with two senators per state, regardless of population. And the effect of this would be that it would also give small states a veto against large states. There wasn't a lot of extensive discussion about why that was important or why that was needed. But it was granted as a concession. Connecticut proposed a compromise saying the House should be by population and the Senate will be equal by state. And this was basically accepted as an expedient political compromise. There wasn't much theorizing behind it. There wasn't much debate about what exactly the danger was. Uh, But it was accepted as an expedient political compromise. And there actually have been some who, who raised... The question of, well, why why does it work this way? Should the government be representing the citizens as citizens, or should it be representing the states as states? And that was never really resolved. It was kind of left in the air. But it was agreed upon that they had to protect the power of the upper class. And James Madison himself, in arguing for the Senate, in arguing for why the Senate was important, first and foremost, as an upper class body, He said in the convention on June 26th, quote, The government that we mean to erect is intended to last for ages. The landed interest at present, and that means large landowners, the landed interest at present is prevalent. But in process of time, when we approximate to the states and kingdoms of Europe, when the number of landholders shall be comparatively small, through the various means of trade and manufactures, Will not the landed interest be overbalanced in future elections? And unless wisely provided against, what will become of your government? In England, at this day, if elections were open to all classes of people, the property of the landed proprietors would be insecure. An agrarian law would soon take place. So he's referring here to land reform, or the breaking up of big estates. And he's saying, look, in England, not all the people can vote. And if they could, then the poor would pass land reform laws, breaking up the large landed estates. So he goes on, if these observations be just, our government ought to secure the permanent interests of the country against innovation. Landholders ought to have a share in the government to support these invaluable interests and to balance and check the other. They ought to be so constituted as to protect the minority of the opulent against the majority. The Senate, therefore, ought to be this body. Okay, 
So it is there to protect, in his words, the minority of the opulent, meaning the wealthy upper class, against the majority. That is his express stated purpose of the Senate. That is why he and Randolph proposed to have a Senate. And this was basically uncontroversial, right? There was disagreement about how to proportion the senators. But that was really a secondary issue to the fact that you had to have an upper body to protect the upper class. Okay, so he's making it explicit here. It's about keeping certain classes out of power and protecting the rich. And it must be structured to prevent particular policies, okay? Just as the Constitution wanted to explicitly stop debt cancellation or paper money, likewise, these bodies were shaped to prevent certain policies like land reform, okay? And it would be stopped not through argumentation or debate, but through the structure of government. And this was justified in their view because the lower classes, the majority, were driven not by reason, and they couldn't be reasoned with, but rather by prejudice or passion, right? So in Madison's view, he's a Virginia planter who owns land and slaves. In his view, his desire to protect his estate is not prejudice or passion. It's just rational, right? Whereas the lower order's desire for land reform or debt relief is prejudice or passion, and hence not a valid part of political debate. Okay. And this fact, again, is later borne out in the details of how the Senate works, that it's elected by legislatures, not by the public, that it's elected to much longer terms. And in the Constitutional Convention, delegates debated Senate's terms ranging anywhere from four years to 10 years, and what they eventually settled on was six years. And, he's, and Madison said further, quote, to answer these purposes, the senators ought to have permanency and stability. Now, today we might say, well, that's fine, but we no longer select senators through the state legislatures. They are popularly elected, just like the House. So hence, uh, the institution is now perfectly valid, and it serves to protect small states against big states. But there's a kind of historical and ontological error in this way of thinking, that the Senate is there to protect the small states. Uh, it's because it is not the case that first states exist and then the Senate is created to protect them and give them a voice. Rather, what has tended to happen is that the Senate predates the existence of most states in the Union. Right? 37 of the 50 states were created after the Senate already existed. And those states were all created by the federal government. All of them were federal territories that the federal government, under the rule of Congress, decided to make into states. And many of them were created specifically in order to control the makeup of the Senate. Okay, There were various compromises before the Civil War that made Maine, for instance, into a separate state from Massachusetts in order to counterbalance the creation of Missouri as a slave state. And after the Civil War, it only became more intense when you have Western territories that had really tiny populations at that time, as they still do now, but, what were, but were carved up and made into many states in order to pack the Senate with senators of a particular party. 
right? And a great example of that is the Dakotas, right? Why do we have two Dakotas? And why does each Dakota get to have two senators, the same as if it was a huge state like California or Texas? Well, the reason is because the Dakota Territory in the 1880s had a very small, thin population, but they were mostly Republican-leaning, right? They were northern and they were favorable to northern interests. They were more Republican. And the senators in the Senate were majority Republican, and they wanted to stack the Senate with more Republicans, particularly in order to prevent the danger of a Democratic takeover and Democratic majority. So rather than simply saying, well, Dakota has a tiny population, we're going to leave it, and instead of saying, okay, when it's big enough, we'll just make Dakota into a state of Dakota, instead, they cut it in two across the middle and made it two states, each with two senators. And that's why we have all of these states like North Dakota, also Wyoming, Montana. It's been parceled out into many states in order to pack the Senate with senators. So, for example, North and South Dakota both became states in 1889. They have a total population between them of 1.64 million, which is less than the population of Manhattan Island in New York City and is less than one-eleventh of the population of New York State, right? It was created as a creature of Congress in order to manipulate representation in Congress, right? So there's a basic ontological error here in thinking, well, there are large and small states, and then you put the Senate in place in order to protect them against each other. In fact, it has more often been the other way around, that we have large and small states with drastically different populations because that is a way of controlling the Senate. Right? So there's very perverse effects and incentives here. And likewise, when it comes to class, right, the Senate has been effective in reserving power for the wealthy elite, right? It does work. The median net worth of a senator today is $3.2 million, okay? So House members, their median net worth is about 900000 So they're already significantly wealthier than the average American, a lot wealthier than the average American today. Uh, and that was foreseen by the framers. But then the Senate above it is even more extreme, where m most senators, almost all senators now, are millionaires, right? And this is a skewed effect that was intended and built into the design of Congress. Okay, now secondly, the idea of the Senate also was to protect southern slave states against the North. Okay, the Senate is not just about protecting small states, it's also about the different regions. And it was created in part about slave versus free states or slave versus less slave states. James Madison argued for the creation of the Senate, right? He was one of the visionaries. And he was from the largest state, which was Virginia. And being from a large state, he really argued for proportional representation, right? That both houses should have representatives according to the size of the state. Uh, but he was overruled. Ultimately, the agreement came to equal representation. But he made it very clear in the course of debate that 
In his view, the real crucial divide was not large versus small, but northern versus southern. And he said uh, in, in this debate about the Senate, quote, the perpetuity it would give to the preponderance of the northern against the southern scale was a serious consideration. It seemed now to be pretty well understood that the real difference of interests lay not between the large and small, but between the northern and southern states. The institution of slavery and its consequences formed the line of discrimination. There were five states on the south and eight on the northern side of this line. So on this particular point, Madison didn't get his way, right? The Senate ultimately was apportioned out equally. But his argument that the real, more important and salient distinction was between pro-slavery and, and less pro-slavery was not objected to. That was basically tacitly agreed to by all the delegates, and it continued to run through all the rest of the negotiation about how do you apportion representation, how do you measure population, how do you assign taxes, how do you elect the president. In all of these places, this divide between northern and southern states became much more important. Okay, so to sum up with the Senate, the Senate was created firstly to protect the upper class, and only secondly was the proportioning worked out to deal with the differences between large and small states. Now, if we go then to the Electoral College, it happens that the equal apportionment in the Senate ended up playing indirectly into the structure of the Electoral College, right? Because each state gets electoral votes based on its number of members of Congress. And that happens to include both representatives and senators, and senators are parceled out two per state. So in a sort of indirect possibly unintentional way, the divide between large and small states plays into the structure of the Electoral College. But as I'll explain, it is very unclear that that was ever the intention. We don't know that. There's no record saying that that was their intention. And it is certainly not the reason why the Electoral College was created in the first place. So what happened when it came to electing president, this was a, a very sensitive issue in the convention. And the delegates really dithered around quite a lot in their debate about how to elect the president. And lots of ideas were thrown out and then dropped. They went around in circles. The initial idea that was proposed, for example, by Wilson of Pennsylvania was just popular vote, was that all eligible voters who can vote for members of Congress should also cast ballots for president. And that should be how you choose the president. The problem with that was, well, there were two main problems with this idea, that it would give too much power again to the general public, and that went against the whole idea of creating this new constitution, which was to take more power away from the majority of the public, and also that different states worked very differently, and there were much more voters in states like, say, Rhode Island or Pennsylvania than there were in states like Virginia or South Carolina. Okay, so other ideas, just briefly, that were thrown out. Some wanted the president to be selected by state legislatures. Some proposed that the president should be selected by the governors of the states. Some proposed that he should be chosen by Congress 
or more specifically just by the Senate. And so the advantage of these various proposals was that all of them could, again, remove the president more from public opinion and the wishes of the majority and reserve power of selecting the president to a smaller elite, whether that was embodied in Congress or the state governments or whatever. And all of them answered this problem of how do we avoid giving too much power directly to the voting populace, right, and to often poor or indebted farmers and so forth. However, eventually they settled on this idea of an electoral college, of each state choosing a set of electors, and those electors would then play some role in selecting the president and vice president. But there was a lot of confusion and dispute about exactly how that should work and whether or not these electors should all meet together like a council or a parliament and hash things out until they've got a choice or if they should just cast votes from each state. And a sensitive issue in all of these questions was how much weight each state would have. And the reason why that was a sensitive issue was not so much about large versus small states, although that came up, again, New Jersey raised that concern. But the bigger issue was how many voters are there in each state? And will the northern states dominate the process as against the southern states? And that was a concern because in most states, most people couldn't vote. Okay. Well, in all states, most people couldn't vote in the sense that no women were able to vote, except maybe New Jersey. But, you know, again, that's exception that proves the rule. Uh, some women did vote in New Jersey. But outside of New Jersey, women could not vote. Paupers, right, people who had no property, who relied on public assistance or charity, couldn't vote. And slaves couldn't vote. So in some states, like Rhode Island, most men could vote. And so they would carry much more weight in proportion to their size in electing a president than would southern states where 40, close to 50% of the people were slaves and couldn't vote. So it was those states, particularly southern states, that denied the right to vote to most of their population because they were either enslaved or very poor. Those were the states that didn't want direct popular election of the president. And instead, they wanted some indirect method where each state would be given a certain number of votes based on their size, but not based on how many people in their state were able to cast ballots, right? This may be a fine distinction, but it was very important, right? Virginia didn't want to be swamped by Pennsylvania just because in Pennsylvania more people could vote than could in Virginia. So they wanted an indirect method. And one way to do that, again, was through Congress, but there was a lot of concern that then there would be intrigue and cabaling and deal-making within Congress over who would get chosen as president among their peers, right? Just like there was in the Parliament in Great Britain. They didn't want this kind of corrupt, uh, you know, horse-trading system where people vie to get a faction behind them and become president. So the compromise then was an electoral college where each state, rather than having the public vote, and hence northern states outweighing southern states, and rather than relying on Congress, instead an electoral college would be formed with delegates from each state based in some way on their size, 
and that electoral college would play some role in choosing who would be president. Madison himself addressed this idea, which he might otherwise be favorable of, of electing the president by popular vote. And in his own notes, he says, quote, there was one difficulty, however, of a serious nature attending an immediate choice by the people. The right of suffrage was much more diffusive, meaning widespread, in the northern than the southern states. And the latter could have no influence in the election on the score of the Negroes. The substitution of electors obviated this difficulty and seemed on the whole to be liable to fewest objections. But they really delayed and there was so much confusion and back and forth and they avoided this question for months and pushed it off until September 1787 when they're all tired, they want to go home, they want to wrap things up and the weather is going to start getting cold so they need to leave. And so they cobbled together kind of at the last minute a weird complicated hybrid system where each state will choose a certain number of electors. These electors in each state will then vote for who they want to be president and send their votes to Congress. Congress will then count these votes, take the top five, the top five vote getters, and then among themselves decide from among those five. And the small states would be protected in this process because ultimately the decision would be in the hands of Congress specifically the House, but in the House, each state would vote on block and cast one equal vote. So this was the way to make sure that Virginia or Pennsylvania didn't totally dominate the process. It would be ultimately handled by Congress, and in Congress, each state would have one equal vote. Okay, well, you may notice this is not how we elect people today at all, right? What we're doing <laughs> has practically nothing to do with what the f framers imagined, right? Instead, now we have this huge popular vote. The electors, they have to be pledged to a candidate already, right? Parties put forward slates of nominees and people vote for one party or another. All of this is totally unlike what the framers imagined. And it is rarely ever decided by Congress. Right? The framers assumed it would be usually decided by Congress, that the final choice would be up to Congress. The electors just kind of nominated or put forward a slate of selections and Congress would make the ultimate choice. And, okay, as they're cobbling together this complicated multi-step process involving electing electors, electors narrow it down to five, Congress chooses among the five. In this process, they had to say, well, how many electors come from each state? And the decision was each state will have electors equal to their delegation in Congress, their number of representatives plus senators. Why? Why did they do that? We don't know. That proposal was put into the draft statement by the Committee of Eleven. Okay, so the convention repeatedly delegated these kinds of hard, nitty-gritty matters to a Committee of Eleven to work out, and they made the final draft of here's how we will elect a president. And it included this line saying each state gets electors equal to senators plus reps. 
There's no record of the deliberations of that committee of 11, so we don't know why they hit upon that formula. And there's no debate. There's no reference to any debate in the convention at large over that point. Rather, it seems that they just kind of threw it together. We want to be done with this. Let's just do something quick and obvious. You get electors equal to your number of congressmen and get it through here, right, and be done with it. There's no explanation of why the founders did it that way. And is it possible that they, that they made that formula as a way of overweighting small states as against big states? Maybe. It's, it's conceivably possible. They never said so. And there's no evidence that they considered that at all important or necessary, since in their view, the protection of small states against big states was already taken care of in the final congressional vote, where each congressional delegation gets one vote. And besides, all of this is irrelevant because nothing about the way we elect presidents today bears barely any resemblance to what the framers were proposing. They did not envision a mass popular vote for one or another candidate. They did not envision electors being pledged to one candidate or another. They did not even imagine that the Electoral College would be the final body to make the choice. They just put it in as one stage in the multi-step process. Okay, so the Electoral College that we're working with today is a weird, accidental, cobbled-together product of history and, and of historical contingency, as historians like to say. It doesn't have a clear scheme or theory behind it, other than the desire to somehow remove the general public from choosing a president and protecting the interests of the upper class and protecting the power of slave states as against less slave states. Okay. So all of this might sound rather cynical, right? Arguing that it's all so much about about class and wealth and and debt and, and so forth. But when we look at the debate that followed over whether or not to ratify the Constitution, it's very clear that this was the foremost concern. For instance, the most famous published statement in support of the Constitution, arguing for its ratification, is probably Federalist Paper Number 10, which historians believe also was penned by James Madison. And you may have seen Federalist Paper Number 10 in class and you know, as it's normally presented, it's about faction, it's about stopping factions from controlling government, but particularly about stopping majorities, preventing the majority from having control over government and policy. So if we look at Madison's words, he warns, government measures are too often decided not according to the rules of justice and the rights of the minor party. Okay, what minor party? but by the superior force of an interested and overbearing majority, right? So the danger here is majority rule. And he goes on to explain the big problem about majority rule is that the majority usually is going to be people with less property, right? There are class divisions in society that make political factions unavoidable. He says, quote, the diversity in the faculties of men from which the rights of property originate, is not less an insuperable obstacle to a uniformity of interests. The protection of these faculties is the first object of government. Okay, so the, 
The purpose of government, in his view, is to protect those who are more able to acquire wealth and property. And he goes on, from the protection of different and unequal faculties of acquiring property, the possession of different degrees and kinds of property results, and from the influence of these on the sentiments and views of the respective proprietors ensues a division of society into different interests and parties. Right? So parties reflect, in his view, differences in wealth and property. Quote, the most durable and common source of factions has been the various and unequal distribution of property. Those who hold and those who are without property have ever formed distinct interests in society. Those who are creditors and those who are debtors fall under a like discrimination. Okay, and these different parties are crucial when specific policy issues come up. So he says later on in the next paragraph, is a law proposed concerning private debts. It is a question to which the creditors are party on one side and the debtors on the other. Okay, so this is a central theme that he repeatedly makes explicit, right? The danger to democratic government is that the majority will take over and that debtors will set policies favorable to their interests as debtors. Now, you may share his views. You may believe this is a totally valid argument, and that's fine, that's your right. But it's important to recognize that is the point in Madison's view and in the argument of Federalist Number 10. This is not about some abstract ideal about republicanism or theory being drawn out of Polybius or whatever. This is about making sure the poor majority and the majority of debtors don't make policy. And he goes on to, to argue that government should be structured in a way that prevents this majority from having power. And he says, quote, when a majority is included in a faction, the form of popular government enables it to sacrifice to its ruling passion or interest both the public good and the rights of other citizens. To secure the public good and private rights against the danger of such a faction and at the same time to preserve the spirit and form of popular government is then the object to which our inquiries are directed. Okay, so basically the majority is governed by passions, right? The minority, the minority of the wealthy or the opulent minority, as he said in the convention, they're not governed by passion or interest. They apparently are just rational and fair, right? But the majority are, are irrational and dangerous, right? The danger of such a faction. And he argues a pure democracy, by which I mean a society consisting of a small number of citizens who assemble and administer the government, can admit of no cure for the mischiefs of faction. A common passion or interest will in almost every case be felt by, by a majority of the whole. A communication and concert result from the form of government itself. So democracy, in his view, is bad because you don't want a majority who agree on things actually acting together in, in concert together, right? So he argues for a republic, quote, by which I mean a government in which the scheme of representation takes place, okay? So in which people don't have direct voice or participation like they do, say, in a town meeting, but rather a republic. And the advantage is first the delegation of government to a small number of citizens elected for the rest. 
The federal republic that Madison argues for in number 10 will, in his view, stop this danger of majority rule, right? because you'll have a smaller subset of society making the decisions, and they'll be selected from a large country with many different groups, interests, classes, who are not likely to come together in agreement and form a majority. So in, in his argument, the choice of representatives will, quote, be more likely to center in men who possess the most attractive merit and the most diffusive and established characters, right? A sort of natural elite. And he warns the smaller the society, the fewer will probably be the distinct parties and interests. And the fewer, the more frequently will a majority be found of the same party and the smaller the number of individuals composing it, and the smaller the compass within which they are placed, the more easily they will concert and execute their plans of oppression. So we should consider the assumption here that Madison is building in to this paper, that majorities are dangerous because when a majority of the people come together, they're going to do something horrible. They're going to do a plan of oppression. Right? And he doesn't tell us right away up front what is this terrible plan of oppression that he's against. He doesn't consider, well, maybe sometimes majorities come together and that's good. And so they do something that is for the public good or advantageous that most people agree on. Instead, it's always a danger. It's always a threat. And what is this invasion? What is this invasion that he's afraid of, of the rights of the minority? He says again in the third to last paragraph, the, the great progress, the great advantage of this new constitution will be in, quote, the greater obstacles opposed to the concert and accomplishment of the secret wishes of an unjust and interested majority, right? So the structure of this government is set up to create obstacles to majority rule. And finally, in the second to last paragraph, he finally gives us a bit more specifics. He lists what are these terrible laws, these violations that he's afraid the majority will impose, right? It's not arbitrary sentencing and imprisonment, arbitrary execution. Uh, rather, it's, quote, a rage for paper money, for an abolition of debts, for an equal division of property, or for any other improper or wicked project will be less apt to pervade the whole body of the union than a particular member of it. So those specific policies I was talking about that certain states were enacting, like paper money or debt relief, this is exactly what this new larger republic will stop. It can't happen. This elite government will stop it. Now, I doubt that many people today agree that paper money constitutes, quote, an improper or wicked project, in Madison's words. Some people might agree with him that debt abolition or division of property is wicked and improper, and hence his argument uh, is valid, and that's fair enough. But the important thing to recognize is that this dispute was not about how do we protect large and small states. This is not what people were arguing about on either side of the debate about the Constitution. They were arguing about majority versus minority rule, right? majority versus elite, and about monetary policy. So not surprisingly, the Constitution as proposed was very controversial. 
and there were many strong views on both sides, as well as many who were ambivalent and unsure. There were delegates at the convention who refused to sign the Constitution and refused to endorse it, for one thing, because it didn't include a Bill of Rights. It didn't have an explicit statement of the rights of citizens that this new government couldn't violate. Right? So not all the delegates themselves were satisfied with it. And even some who signed onto it were very ambivalent and lukewarm, including, for example, Benjamin Franklin. Franklin wrote a long letter to the convention urging other delegates to sign on. And he said, quote, I confess that there are several parts of this constitution which I do not at present approve, but I am not sure I shall never approve of them. Right? So, you know, whatever, maybe I'll come around. And he goes on, I agree to this constitution with all of its faults, if they are such, because I think a general government necessary for us. So we have to come up with some stronger government, even if this one isn't necessarily so good. He doesn't say specifically why. But he also confesses, quote, I doubt, too, whether any other convention we can obtain may be able to make a better constitution. Right? So this may be just the best that we'll get. So we should go with it. And he continues, thus I consent, sir, to this constitution because I expect no better. The opinions I have had of its errors, I sacrifice to the public good. I have never whispered a syllable of them abroad. Within these walls they were born, and here they shall die. So he doesn't want to derail the process of ratification by spelling out explicitly what his problems and criticisms are of the Constitution, but he openly owns that there are some and that it's valid for people to criticize it and to want to change it. And indeed, this makes sense, considering that the delegates even themselves included an article, Article 5, that provided for a process of amendment. And as soon as it went into effect, uh, the Congress was forced by political pressure to use that amendment process in order to add a Bill of Rights. So nobody at the time it seems, saw this as perfect, and even many supporters of the Constitution saw it as highly imperfect and in need of improvement or maybe even replacement. Thomas Jefferson was not present, right? He was serving the country as a diplomat in France when the Constitution was drawn up. He had no part in it. And it seems that he too sort of accepted it with some ambivalence, some reservations. But remarkably, he wrote, in 1789, he wrote a letter, an open letter, to James Madison, to his friend James Madison, who had been so influential in the crafting of the Constitution. And in this letter, he said, a generation of people only have the right to bind themselves to a contract or a covenant, but they have no right to bind future generations. Right? Every, every person is born free with the liberty to make his own choices, and you should not be bound by agreements that somebody else made before you were born. And on this basis, Jefferson argues that the Constitution should be thrown out and a new constitutional convention should be held every 20 years, right? so that no generation is forced to adhere to the contracts of its parents. And this, too, seems to have been pretty uncontroversial when Jefferson wrote it. It was commonly assumed 
that the Constitution would continue to change, to be revised, or to be replaced. Now, when the Constitution was sent out to the various states, again, it was highly controversial. Some states signed on very quickly, including Delaware, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Georgia, which were the first four, and all signed on very fast for different reasons. But many other states either rejected the Constitution, refused to consider it, or there was a lot of division and they only narrowly agreed to sign on on the stipulation, with the stipulation that a Bill of Rights had to be added. Right? So the Bill of Rights was not the idea of the framers. And most of them just didn't see it as significant and didn't want to place limits on this new government and were afraid that the, it would be hobbled and that the states would use the Bill of Rights against the new government. And the reason it was added on was because several states, such as Massachusetts, specifically demanded we will only ratify if a Bill of Rights is added. And so Madison and his allies agreed and eventually in 1790 put forward a Bill of Rights with 10 amendments. Right? So our most famous and most cherished lines of the Constitution, like you know, free exercise of religion or right to bear arms, those are all in the Bill of Rights that was insisted on and added thanks to the anti-federalists thanks to the opponents and critics of the Constitution, not the framers. Right? Now, as I said, some states rejected it, and the state that absolutely, adamantly rejected and totally refused to accept the Constitution was, you can probably guess, Rhode Island. Now, there's an important irony here when it comes to Rhode Island, because Rhode Island is a small state, and at the time, it was the fourth smallest state out of the 13. And yet it was the one that absolutely solidly said no to the Constitution. It was repeatedly put forward as a proposal in the state legislature. It was repeatedly voted down for years, even as other states little by little ratified. And the one other longest holdout was North Carolina, and North Carolina finally uh, came over and agreed to ratify in 1789. But Rhode Island continued to say no until the winter of 1790. And by that point, Rhode Island was being frozen out politically and commercially. Congress was already in effect. Washington had been sworn in as president. And the new government threatened, firstly, to embargo Rhode Island. They made formal open threats to, to place an embargo on Rhode Island and choke their economy as long as they refused to ratify. And some politicians in other states even proposed going further, proposed abolishing Rhode Island, basically sending in troops and militias, occupying it, abolishing their government, and dividing the territory between Connecticut and Massachusetts. And if you know Rhode Islanders, you probably know that was like a fate worse than death, to be annexed by Connecticut. So finally, Rhode Island agreed, they were tipped over, and agreed to at least hold a convention to consider ratification in 1790. Uh, and it was still very controversial and there was a lot of opposition. So let's talk for a moment about why Rhode Island objected so strenuously. It did not have anything to do with the balance between large and small states. That was just a minor concern that didn't really matter to them, just as it didn't really matter to other states like Delaware, which was small, and Pennsylvania, which was big. 
Rather, Rhode Island rejected the structure of the government and the fact that power would be reserved so much to a small inner circle of mostly upper-class men, and it would be taken away from the democratic institutions of Rhode Island, like the town meetings and the state assembly. So Rhode Island was a very democratic state, and it used those terms. Rhode Islanders often referred to their government as democratical and their towns as democratical. Several town charters said this is a democratical society. They had a very wide franchise, as I said. Most men could vote, including tenants and sometimes artisans and so on. They held elections every year, okay, annual elections. Often they were hotly contested. The House of Deputies had most of the power, the lower house. The upper house of assistants had less power, and it was elected at large by all the voters of the state. Likewise, the governor was popularly elected by the voters of the state, and it tended to be highly responsive to the wishes of the majority, and that's part of why they enacted all of these laws like the paper money laws in the 1780s. And Rhode Islanders overwhelmingly rejected the idea that the Articles of Confederation government was too small or too weak and needed to be replaced by a bigger, more powerful government, which would overrule state policies. This is what they opposed. In one of their letters to the President and Congress explaining their rejection of the Constitution, the Rhode Island Assembly wrote, quote, The people of this state from its first settlement have been accustomed and strongly attached to a democratic form of government. They have viewed in the new constitution an approach, though perhaps but small, toward that form of government from which we have lately dissolved our connection at so much hazard and expense of life and treasure. So in their opinion, the constitution was a step backward, closer to monarchy and aristocracy. And they say, quote, We are sensible of the extremes to which democratic governments are sometimes liable, something of which we have lately experienced, but we esteem them temporary and partial evils compared with the loss of liberty and the rights of a free people. You might see this as alarmist, and you might say, well, these concerns have been addressed now because of things like universal adult suffrage and direct election of senators, and that's fine. Uh, that's fair enough. But there are other issues that Rhode Island raised, like the fact that states under the Constitution didn't have any power to recall their representatives, to say, we don't like the job you're doing or the way you voted, and we're removing you from office, the way voters in many states can do with their own governors or state officials. You can't do that with congressmen. There's no mechanism for states to instruct their representatives and senators and tell them how the state wants them to vote. And in Rhode Island's view, all of these were illustrations of the fact that the new government was designed to be unresponsive and removed from the democratic wishes of the majority of people. And so it's not just about how are senators elected, and it's not just about how are senators or electors apportioned, right? All of these government structures were all set up as mediating structures to 
tamp down and, if necessary, cancel out the initiatives coming from the majority, right? And once again, you might agree that those are valid maneuvers, right? That it is perfectly legitimate or acceptable for our government to tamp down the democratic impulse of the majority of the people or to veto or suppress policies that the majority wants. But it is not valid to try to explain these bodies like the Senate or the Electoral College using these other terms, saying that, well, it was about the protecting small states from big states, right? That, that sort of mythology doesn't hold up. At least it doesn't hold up as the central reason or concern behind how the Constitution was created, why it was created in the way it was, and why it was accepted or rejected by different states. The underlying issue is more about wealth, class, inequality, control of the money supply, and control of debts. And it happens that once the Constitution was enacted and put into effect, the first law, the first state law struck down by the new Supreme Court was a Rhode Island state law dealing with debts. So in this first instance of federal uh, judicial review striking down a state law, it was in the case of Champion and Dickinson versus Casey, in which the Supreme Court intervened in an internal dispute in Rhode Island and struck down a Rhode Island law that protected debtors in Rhode Island against a British creditor, right? So this kind of policy and class concern ran through the entire debate over the Constitution and its shape and its enactment, right? And so we have to address that first and acknowledge that historical fact if and when we debate about these bodies like the Senate and the Electoral College that represent people in imbalanced and arguably anti-democratic ways. So thank you again so much for listening. If you want to keep these lectures coming and if you want me to commit to producing three of them a month on a regular, dependable basis, please go to my Patreon page, become a patron, any amount of money, and you'll be able to have access to all of my patron-only materials too. Thank you.